So I invite you to take a copy of the scriptures, whether you have that on an app form or a, a good old physical copy, and we're going to turn to John chapter 7. John is uh, uh, what's often called the Gospel of John, is a Greco-Roman biography of Jesus written by Jesus' best friend. And as a church community since December, we've been working our way little by little through this, um, this biography of Jesus to see who John is revealing to us by the Holy Spirit who Jesus is. And we've been seeing that um, John has organized this biography around seven signs, seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed, and that these signs were just that. They were signs that were meant to point to something. Signs are not the point themselves, but signs, in fact, point to um, the object. And so if you're uh, driving through Arizona, you're not likely going to be taking pictures of a sign that says Grand Canyon, 100 miles. Grand Canyon, turn left. You're going to be taking pictures of what that sign is pointing to. You're going to take pictures of the Grand Canyon. And so in the same way, Jesus uh, and John uh, is saying Jesus performs these miraculous signs, but the signs in and of themselves, the miracles in and of themselves, are not the point. They're pointing to uh, something greater. They're pointing to the identity of who Jesus is and what he has come to be about. And so really that's the organizing feature of this biography. And so the last sign um, here in John 7, we're not talking about one of those signs, but it's the follow-up from one of the signs where Jesus took some fish burgers and fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and two fish. And he broke them and made this miraculous provision of food for a crowd, for an immense crowd. And we'll explain some more later on. So let's read our passage for this morning, John chapter 7, and we're going to read uh, verse 1 to 18. So after this, so this is after um, what Jeff spoke on last week in John chapter 6, and I'll refer to that in a minute. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. So Galilee is in the north, Jerusalem and Judea is in the south. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, that happens in Jerusalem, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast. Because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also. Not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds... There was a widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews, which is fear of the Jewish leaders. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. 
If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. This is God's word to us this morning. So the context in which this is happening is that Jesus has performed this miraculous sign of feeding 5,000 people with just a couple of loaves of bread and, and two fish. And it says in that, in that account that uh, Jesus withdrew from the, that crowd because he perceived that the crowd was going to take him by force and make him king. And Jesus knew, Jesus uh, says, I, I am a king, but I'm not that kind of a king. I'm not a king who's come as a political king. I'm a different kind of king. And so he withdrew. And his disciples were like, well, what do we do? And so they got in a boat and they sailed across the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, remember Jesus walked on water and met them halfway uh, across the lake. And they end up going to the other side of the lake. The next day, the crowds hear that, hey, Jesus is over in the, on the other side of the lake, and the whole crowd follows, finds him, and they basically want some more bread. They're like, Jesus, provide for us again. This is pretty sweet. You know, not having to work for food, you just take a little bit and make lots of it. We like this. And Jesus begins to, begins to teach them. And he begins, like what Jeff was, was referring to last week and, and the week before, he says, I am the bread of life. You're missing the point. It's not about physical bread. I am the bread of life that's come down. And, and he say, goes on to talk, talk to them about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which wasn't, of course, promoting cannibalism at all, but rather uh, saying, you need to take me in and the totality of who I am as to provide life for you. I've, come, I've not come to bring, I've come to, that you may have life and have it to the full, but you have to receive me. You have to take me in as the staple, as the source of your life. And it says in John 6 that, that many stopped following him because it was a hard saying. Not hard to understand, but difficult to accept. They didn't like his teaching, and so many stopped following Jesus. And so it's in this context where Jesus has had this large following, this large crowd. He's been really, really popular because of the signs, especially the sign of feeding people. He's been really popular. But now, all of a sudden, his popularity has dwindled. He's down in the polls. And so his campaign managers, his brothers, come along and begin to act like his campaign managers. They begin to craft his image and say, Jesus, you're down in the polls, but, but we can turn this thing around yet. We can turn this around. We can regain some of the followers you've lost. So Jesus, here's how we're going to do it. Tone down the hard teaching. Don't stop. Stop talking about blood. Stop talking about eating your body. Stop the hard teaching where you call out the religious leaders and their hypocrisy and their injustice. Stop the hard teaching, Jesus. Miracles. Feeding people. Healing people. That's where it's at. And let's not stay up here in backwater Galilee where the, in, in all these little hick towns like Nazareth and Capernaum. And let's, let's, go, let's go to the big stage. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to the capital city. Let's go at a time where the, where the whole nation 
is actually gathering this feast of booze, the most popular of all the feasts. There's three feasts throughout the year. This is the most well-attended feast, the feast of booze, because it was like a camping party for like a week. I don't get it. I hate camping, but people there liked camping. And so they, they were gathering, and, 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 and Jesus' campaign managers say, here we go. What an opportunity for you. You know, you've been talking about building walls between Mexico or, and like it's unpopular. So let's, let's start changing the message and let's start doing some great things, right? That's a Trumpism there. I heard a great joke during the Olympics. What's the one sport Donald Trump was interested in in the Olympics? The Mexican pole vaulting team. That's the only thing he cared about, right? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. That was great. So, but that's exactly what Jesus' brothers are doing here, right? Jesus' brothers are acting like political campaign managers, saying, Jesus, we're going to manage your image, we're going to craft your image, tone down the hard stuff, let's amp up the popular stuff. Just talk about what people want to hear and what people want to see. Give them what they want, Jesus. You can do it. People will love you. The whole nation will follow you. You'll be the next great thing. You'll be, the, you'll be the most popular rabbi on the circuit. But then look at verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. That word for is important. It's an explanation word. John is saying, he's commenting here, he's saying, the brothers, Jesus' brothers are acting this way. Jesus' brothers are acting like campaign managers because they didn't believe in him. Jesus' brothers are trying to promote Jesus' image, trying to make him popular because they didn't believe in him. That's kind of surprising, isn't it? That the reason his brothers were were trying to craft his image is because they didn't believe in Jesus. That, in fact, the crafting of Jesus' public image was a sign that they didn't fully believe in him, that they didn't trust in him. They thought Jesus should put on a show to regain his following, but Jesus knew the show did not establish genuine faith. That's already been pointed out several times in John's gospel. It says after one of the miracles, it says Jesus didn't, more people began to follow him. He says Jesus didn't trust in them because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew that they were following him just because of the show, just because of the signs and the wonders. And they were missing the point of what the sign was for. They're taking pictures of the sign of, of the Grand Canyon instead of marveling and being amazed at the Grand Canyon, at who Jesus is. Again, the signs are all about pointing to who he is. So Jesus resists that human wisdom. Go be popular. Jesus knows God's truth is not always popular. You know, and so we, we, how often do we think about the, like, these kinds of things? And how, how the message of, and, and we come up with our own ideas about how the message about Jesus, you know, will gain a hearing in Niagara today. Or hear, gain a hearing in our world. Or you think, man, Jesus, why don't you just show up? Like, show up in Times Square. Just pop right in the middle and say, here I am. This is what a real party's like. Show up in Rio de Janeiro during the Olympics, right beside the Christ the Redeemer statue. So I don't quite look like that, but here's what my redemption is all about. Teach and show yourself to be powered. Show up at Buckingham Palace and say, this is what a true king is like. 
we think, wow, Jesus, do something. But here's the truth, that my attempts to craft Jesus' image reveals my unbelief. And so how often do we, even as a church, say, hey, this is what we need to do in order for Jesus' teaching to become popular in our day. We need a grooving band, right? If, if only our building wasn't a little more awkward, a little less awkward. If only, like, we had a nicer building. If only our band was more a certain style. Or if only the preacher told better jokes. If, and, and again, my, the, here, what I've had to repent of many times is feeling is working on a sermon and saying, if only I was, if only I'm eloquent enough, and only if I'm funny enough and endearing enough, then, then people will believe. And you begin to trust in our efforts and in what we bring to the table. Instead of trusting in, in the, the method, and, or instead of trusting in the will of the Lord Jesus, and, 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 and coming to him not in prayer, how often do we come to God in prayer and say, okay, God, this is what you got to do. And this is when you have to do it. Jesus, if you would just do this, then more people would believe in you. And we come like, to give God a lecture in prayer. Instead of seeking him in prayer and waiting on him and trusting in the ways and the means in which he has already promised to bless. The ministry of the word of simply sharing the message, the ministry of prayer. How often do we, how much effort do we pour into other things other than those things? And is that possibly a reflection of our lack of faith like Jesus' brothers? I'm not going to gather for corporate prayer. That doesn't really work. That doesn't do anything. Let's pour our energy in in, in massaging Jesus' image this way. Is that possible? That that's a word to us here. For Jesus' brothers did not believe in him as they're going about crafting a worldly wisdom and crafting his image to make him more popular, to make him more satiable, to make him, him eat more easy to swallow in the culture in which they were living. Now, it doesn't mean we give God our garbage. It doesn't mean I shouldn't work hard at being eloquent, at, at being clear in communication. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard in, in our worship bands and, and playing well doesn't mean we shouldn't do something with this building it doesn't it means we don't put our trust in those things we see those things as tools in god's sovereign hand instead of the thing itself all right where was i all right verse uh, six let's keep going here therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. So Jesus, they're, they're saying, go to Jerusalem, be a public figure, do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus says, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast because for me the right time has not yet come. So having said this, he stayed in Galilee. And the brothers must have been thinking, great, great point, Jesus. Um, Case in point, in fact, stop talking like this. Right? Stop talking about telling the world about how evil it is. Stop talking about how much the world hates you. No one likes a guy who everyone hates, right? By definition. So Jesus, exactly. Stop talking like that. I'm so ready to tell God what to do. It reveals that I, th- what, that I think he actually needs to be buffed up. And so I'm in prayer. How often do we like, God, go be popular. We're so ready to apologize for God because of what he says. We want to sand off the sharp edges, soften the hard teaching. But friends, don't apologize for God. Don't apologize for God. Apologize for the church when we act like fools. Apologize for yourself and acting inconsistently. Apologize for Christian leaders on the news. Apologize for me and all the dumb things I say. Apologize for being overbearing and not walking in humility. Apologize for all those things, but don't apologize for God. And friends, in this culture in which we live, the the pressure will only increase for us to apologize for God's word. It will. The pressure will increase for us to apologize for God's word saying what it says. Whether it's about the exclusive claims of Jesus, that Jesus is in fact the only way to the Father, that the the only way to be reconciled with God, the only way to join the kingdom of God is through Jesus. The pressure will only intensify on us as a church to say, well, maybe not. Maybe there's other ways. Whether it's, you know, the, the, the hot, so, the, whether it's social issues, the pressure will only, the, the temperature will only be turned up on us to, to say, well, maybe God's word doesn't really mean this about marriage or gender. Maybe that's not really, maybe let's let culture help us interpret the Bible more than let's letting the Bible interpret culture. The pressure is going to be turned up on us. And it's because we think we got to manage God's image. It's not, it's not palatable. It's not, um, it's not popular in our culture to hold exclusive claims about Jesus. It's not popular to hold exclusive views about marriage. It's not popular. And if we think we need to manage God's image, the pressure for us to flip on these things, or at least wa- waffle, will only intensify. And when, and when we do, and when a church does, and, and it's happening all the time, and unfortunately it's going to happen more, as a, say, for example, in the marriage question, as any time a church will, or a church body waffles on that issue and, and, and flips and says, well, you know what, marriage can be for any two adults. The media will pick up on that and say, finally, finally the church is get, catching up with the times. Finally, the church is getting with the program. Which reveals, friends, an assumption about what the church is all about. What the church's job is. Is it the church's job to cheer market trends? If it is, why do we need it? 
It's like the Ministry of Environment, right? In Ontario, we have a Ministry of Environment whose job is to protect the, protect the environment against polluters. We don't go out and say, hey, MOE, get with the times. People pollute. We drive cars. Get over it. If it doesn't do its mission of protecting the environment, it has no reason to exist. And so it's fine if you reject the claims of Christianity, but to say the church has no right to hold up Jesus and say, I invite you to believe in him as the way to the Father. Or for the church uh, to, to say the church has no right to hold up the, the scriptures, the word of God, and say, this is what it means to flourish as a human being. To say the church has no right to do that is to misunderstand what the church is all about. Verse 7, look at verse 7 again. It says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. This is in response to Jesus' brother saying, go show yourself to the world. Now, as we, come to the, as we come to this word world in the Bible, it can be kind of confusing. Jesus is saying, hey, the world hates me. Uh, it says in 1 John 2, don't love the world. Don't love the world or the things of the world. And so we, and sometimes you say, oh, man, the world, God, God hates the world. I'm not supposed to love the world. Any Bible verse come to mind that would contradict that? Anyone? John 3.16, right? God so loved the world. It's the same Greek word, cosmos. What's the deal? God so loved the world, but then saying the world hates him, don't love the world. It can, the reason for this apparent contradiction is because the, the, it, can, it can be referring to different things. And it's really clear, it's really important that we understand which world particular verse is talking about so world can mean this physical world and all of humanity in it god so loved the world god loves this physical world that he has made and he loves the people who fill it he so loves that world that he sent his son or it can mean and and so if we if we read things like do not love the world or the things of the world and we take that to mean, oh, this physical world. Don't love this physical world. So let's just use it up. Let's be polluters. Let's just, who gives, who gives a rip? It's going gonna, it's gonna to burn up in the end anyway, right? Who cares? Or, or even, you know, other physical things. Don't love those things. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying God so loves humanity. He loves this physical world he's made. He calls us to care for it. He loves the people in this world. So what's the, the other sense? Well, the other sense is the spirit of the world. It can mean the spirit of the world. Jesus says, don't love the spirit of this world, this independent of God, this rebellious, rebelliousness against God. That's when, when he says, the world hates me. It's that spirit of the world that has infected all of humanity. Spirit of the world that says the here and the now is all that matters. That what I see now and what I feel now is all that matters. So I want to illustrate this a little bit, and I need, uh, I need a young person, a kid, to come on up and help me illustrate this. Who's, the, uh, who's got some bravery here? Come on up. Um, no, you stay there. You're my kid. You've been up already this year, this summer. All right, come on up. Someone come up. I'll pick you. 
All right, come on up, bud. Hey there. What's your name? Andrew. Did everyone hear that? Andrew. Andrew James Zadarozny. How are you, young man? Good, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Yeah, good to see you. All right, so we have to illustrate this. this um, I'm trying to, to help us understand this idea that this world thinks only what it can see and feel right now is what's real. But people who believe in Jesus, who believe in God, believe that, yeah, what we see right now is real, but there's also things that we don't see that are also real. And I'm gonna see, we want to illustrate what happens, uh, how we think about each other about that. You think we can do that? Yeah, like what you you're gonna kind of think I'm crazy. Do you think so? All right, you you can hold on to the mic. Okay, so so Andrew, you like the mic? That's good. How many people do you think are in the room right now? How many people do you think? Forty. Forty. Okay. There's about, probably about 200, but let's, let's go with 200, okay? okay? Okay. So there's about 200 people in the room, maybe. There's people up there, too. See them? The balcony? Waving to them. Okay. What, what if I told you, you know, Andrew, I think there's 1,000 people in the room. What would you think about me? I don't think so. You think I'm wrong? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, so here's your task, Okay. Your task is to go to the person in this room who's closest to you and ask them what they did yesterday. Can you do that? The person who's closest to you right now, not me, other than me, because I would be closest to you, maybe. Um, And I want you to go and ask them what they did yesterday. Can you do that? Yeah. Okay. You go do that. Hey, hey, watch out for this guy right here. Hey, Bob, I'm sorry about Andrew. I'm sorry for him walking right into you and ignoring you. Andrew, go to the closest person in this room and ask them what they did yesterday, okay? Oh, are you blind? There's another per- There's a girl right there, Sally. Don't you see her? Don't you see her? Do you see Sally right here? You don't? No. Are you blind? No. What do you think about me right now? What are you, th- what are you thinking about me right now? There's, you think there's no one there? There's Sally and Bob right here. How do you not see them? There's a thousand people in this room. You don't get it? You don't see them? You don't see Sally and Bob right here on the stage with us no. right now? In fact, there's a hundred people on this stage right now. Do you, not, you don't see that? No. I think you're blind. You're missing out. And you think I'm... Loco? Crazy? Thanks, Andrew. Great job. The spirit of this world, the spirit of this world says, what I can see and what I can feel right now is all that's real. The believer in Jesus says, yes, what you see and what you feel is real, but there's a whole other realm. There's the here and the now, but there's the there and the then. That's just as real. That there is a spiritual realm. That there is a God. That there, the Holy Spirit is a real person. That Jesus 
is really alive and active in this world right now. And we look at this world and we say, oh, you're blind, you're missing out on so much. And the world looks at us and says, you're a little loco, right? You're praying to someone, you can't, you're talking to someone you can't see. You're believing someone rose from the dead after they were dead for three days and you're staking your whole life on that? Right? The spirit of this world that says here and now and we say yes and also then and there. And so the the Christian says right now counts forever. And the spirit of this world says right now is all that matters. And those two systems are on a collision course. Inevitably, on a collision course, the world hates me, Jesus says. The world hates me. The world thinks I'm a little local. There's a collision course. How does that play out? How does that play out? When John, in one of his letters to the churches, writes and says... Do not love the world or the things of this world. Don't, don't love the spirit of this world, that the here and the now is all that matters. How does that play out in our daily life? Here's one example. Many of us own businesses. I don't. Many of you own businesses. And as a business owner, you have employees. If, you're, if the here and the now are all that matters, you'll develop your employees only to the point where they're useful to you. I'll train you, I'll help you, only to the point where you help make me more money right now. Christian business owners, the here and the now matters forever, there and then. And who, who's going to last forever? You see your employees as men and women created in the image of God who are made to live forever. And so you will sacrifice some profit now in order to develop them for eternity. And so they're much more, worth much more than a few extra bucks. There's one example, not to make it too heavy on you, or accuse anyone of injustice or anything like that. Just one example of how the spirit of this world, the here and the now are all that matter versus Yes, here and now counts so much it lasts forever. It counts forever then and there. All right, let's move on. Verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, which raises a bit of a question. What's the question? Did Jesus lie? Look at verse 3. Or what did you, Jesus says, you go. I'm not going. And then he goes. What's the deal, Jesus? Liar? Are you a liar? Jesus, what it's saying is Jesus didn't go in the way in which they wanted. He says, I'm not going your way. I'll go my own way. I don't answer to you. I answer to the Father in heaven. And when he says the time is right... That's when I'll go. 
Now at the feast, verse 11, now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowd, there were widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. Now contrast that with verse 3. So halfway through the feast, Jesus goes and he begins to teach. Verse 3. You ought to leave here, go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. His brothers are saying, his campaign managers are, go go and tone down the teaching that's making you unpopular, and go and do miracles. Jesus goes and teaches. And in fact, his teaching isn't entirely popular. He starts going down the same line of teaching that's gotten him hated, that's made people want to kill him, he, he goes down that same road of teaching. Verse 15. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing, nothing false about him. You see, when a new rabbi would come on the circuit, when a new teacher of, of religious teachings would come, they would often quote whose authority they came in. Basically, who's, who, which other rabbi, which previous rabbi did you stutter, stu, study under? Were you taught under? And so you, the, a new rabbi would come and say, I come in the authority of Rabbi Gamaliel, who is my teacher, who is my mentor, who's a disciple I am, and then begin to quote uh, Gamaliel and other rabbis and say, thus says Rabbi Hillel, and this, thus says Rabbi Gamaliel, and they begin to do their teaching. Jesus comes and he doesn't quote anyone. He just begins to teach. And they're like, wow, well, who's your teacher? Where, you, where do you derive your authority to teach us? And Jesus says, I derive my authority from the one who sent me, which is my Father in heaven. Which in John 5 is what, when he began to make, speak of God as his Father, as the one who sent him, they wanted to kill him because of that. Verse 17 again. If anyone chooses to do God's will, literally it says, if anyone wills to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. How do we know, here's a question, how do we know if it's our will to do God's will? Or in other words, what does that mean? How do we know if it's our will to do God's will? If anyone wills to do God's will, he'll find out whether my teaching comes from God or not. What? Does that not confuse you? Does that not like seem really sick, circle, circular argument, reasoning? What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. It means that having a will to do God's will, having a will to do God's will means seeking to believe in Jesus. Having a will to do God's will means seeking to believe in Jesus. In the previous chapter, John 6, verse 40, Jesus says this, It's my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son, believes in the Son, and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up in the last day. All throughout the New Testament, fundamentally, 
What is the will of God? The will of God for you is that you would believe in, in Jesus. You would put your trust in Jesus. It means walking by faith. It means saying to Jesus, you can be believed. You know, Augustine, the quote's on the screen, says, Do not seek to understand in order to believe, but to believe in order to understand. Don't seek to believe in order to understand. Don't seek to understand in order to believe, but to believe in order to understand. That's profound, actually. It may seem a little confusing, but as you, as you chew on that one for a little bit, don't seek to understand in order to believe. Don't go all logical, rational. I've got to figure this all out, and then maybe I'll believe. But rather, believe. And then things will begin to make sense. If you go all rational, if you do the first part, if you um, seek to understand in order to believe, where's your faith? Who are you believing in? I got to figure this out. I'll read every philosopher, every apologist under the sun, and I will figure this out. I will follow the evidence, and my brain will lead me to the truth. Who are you trusting? Who are you trusting? Yourself. Your faith is in yourself. I couldn't possibly be wrong. If I study long enough and hard enough, I, would, I couldn't possibly be wrong. And I think what Jesus is saying is, is to do the will of God, to believe in, in him, that you have to make that prior commitment. Now, it doesn't mean leaps into the dark. It doesn't mean turn off your brain, check your brain at the door. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means if you want to seek to do God's will, you need to seek to believe in the Lord Jesus. Which is really profound, I think, if you think about it. I've been chewing on that all week, actually. Don't try to figure it all out before you walk by faith. Believe so that you can live it out. Don't come for your own glory. Don't come in your own authority, but obey the one who sent you. Just like Jesus did. We can't do God's will perfectly, but because of Jesus, we can believe in the one who did. Look at verse 8 again. Verse 8 is how I'm just going to conclude our time here. It says, you go to the feast, I'm not yet going up, because for me, the right time has not yet come. The right time. The word there is kairos. And it's an important word in the New Testament. It's an important word in, in, uh, in John. You know, there's, there's two ways of talking about time. There's chronos, chronos time, where we get the word chronological. What time is it? It's 11 o'clock. Kevin's been speaking too long. Um, and there's kairos time, which means the right time, the, the fullness of time, that the time is now, the time is ripe, the time is, is ready. It's the right time. And Jesus says, my time, my kairos, my crucial time, my moment, my hour is often uh, in John. My hour is not yet come. Even though the world hates me, I'm not going to Jerusalem yet because I have an appointment with death and I am going to keep it. When he talks about his hour, when he talks about his kairos time, he's talking about the time of his death. He says, I have an appointment with death and I am going to keep it, but not yet. And here is how I will deal with my enemies in the world. I will die for them in order to make them my friends. 
So brothers, you want, you want me to go have a high-profile ministry by giving people what they want, and Jesus says, no, I will go have a public ministry, and I'll give people what they need. Not what they want, but what they need. And there would be a tremendous demonstration of God's power and glory in Jerusalem, but it was not the way the brothers thought. The day, the demonstration of Jesus' power and glory is in the garden and on Calvary's hill as he suffered and died in the dark, as he gave himself to die for you and for me. That's his time to die for the world, to make enemies.